You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host and Livin. Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring experts on the ground in Ukraine and from around the world, covering myriad issues caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I am Anne Levine, your host and producer from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. This week, a story of four friends in New England who united to bring food and succor to the most vulnerable victims of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, orphaned and displaced children. With the assistance of Rotary Clubs in Plymouth, New Hampshire, and Zamosh, Poland, our guest Susan Matheson and her partners, Alex Ray, Steve Rand, and Lisa Muir, founded the NGO Common Man for Ukraine, which has brought food, warmth, and love to hundreds of Ukrainian children. Susan Matheson, welcome to Ukraine 242. Well, thank you. Could you tell us a bit about yourself? I'm one of the four co-founders of a nonprofit called Common Man for Ukraine. Alex Ray, owner of the Common Man family of restaurants here in New Hampshire, his partner Lisa Murray, my partner Steve Rand, who's a third-generation hardware store owner here in Plymouth, New Hampshire, and myself. That's who we are. Four friends who looked at the news on February 24th and we were aghast, and so the four of us took action. To a normal person sitting in a coffee shop in February to say, "Let's go to Ukraine during this war to figure out how to help people," is absurd. But Alex has a history of being a very successful businessman here in New Hampshire, but also a great philanthropist and humanitarian. He's a little bit crazy, and of course. That's part of his success as a business person, and that led to him saying, "We have to do something." So we're going to go to Ukraine and find out how to help. Alex, at this time, pledged to donate one million dollars as a match. So we were determined to raise another million to make two million. Do you remember the date that you first went? We first went in late April. Mm-hmm. Both Alex and Steve Rand—they belong to the Rotary Club—and their first thought was, "We need contacts on the ground in Ukraine and in Poland." So they contacted the presidents of both Ukraine and Poland Rotary Club and said, "We're four friends from the U.S. Our goal is to raise two million dollars to fund your projects in Ukraine." And we're headed your way in three days. And three days later, we were met in Warsaw by the Rotarians in Poland mm-hmm. and brought to a meeting room. And the president of the, the district governor of the Polish Rotary had assembled 16 Rotary Club presidents from Ukraine and from Poland, and they presented to us the projects that they were crafting at these very early months of the war. 
In retrospect, those were too small and too short in duration, as none of us knew or could have dreamt that the war would continue so long. Mm. So we looked at those projects and we thought, well, okay, well, we can fund a lot of this work. But Alex was intent on looking people in the eyes and saying, what do you need? And so the next day we jumped into a van and we went into Ukraine and started touring refugee centers and schools and safe houses for kids and started accumulating information and contacts that would lead to where we are now. And it was that on the ground connection that ultimately made the whole project work so well. It wasn't writing a check to some nonprofit with a whole bunch of overhead and who knows what actually happened. It was all volunteers working together, no overhead. Every single driver of these goods into Ukraine, every person who drives a forklift in one of our warehouses is a volunteer. And, and that's how we operate. Let me backtrack a little bit here. The trip into Ukraine is quite arduous and long. It's not just a little hop. Can you tell us about the first time you went and what it was like for you? You're exactly right. You fly to Warsaw. You can't fly into Ukraine. We took the train from Warsaw to Lublin, and then we were met by a van and we were taken to Zamosh, which is an amazing ancient walled city in Poland, just 40 minutes from the Ukrainian border. As things evolved, that is a place where we have established two warehouses and we accumulate goods in those two warehouses because of its proximity. But I digress. We then went from Zamosh to the border in our van and we had our papers and we drove to the line. Now, if you're a truck of World Central Kitchen or some other nonprofit or just a commercial carrier waiting to cross the border into Ukraine, it's a five-day wait. It's a five-day wait. In our case, it would have been volunteer truck drivers who would have been willing to wait five days in line to get into Ukraine to have their trucks examined. And then on the way back, the line is about the same because Poland is equally as cautious about who's coming into their country these days. So the very first time driving across the border as a soccer mom, so to speak, it was humbling. Never been in a war zone, haven't confronted automatic weapons in my life. It was humbling. And it has never become comfortable. There's plenty of checkpoints all over Ukraine, automatic weapons, military people everywhere, sandbags blocking roads and covering up windows and air raid sirens. And it's never easy. And when I hand over my passport, when our truck full of people hands over their passports, it's a heart stop moment mm -hmm. as you wait to see what will happen. And it doesn't get easier. But I'll tell you what makes it possible for us is that every Ukrainian we meet, from the smallest child to the oldest senior citizen, is so brave and so committed that they will win this war against such a strong adversary. 
they are so brave that I just feel as though it's my responsibility to be as brave as Ukrainians for a day or a week or two weeks. I can do it because they're waking up for almost a year and a half and have to be brave every day. And so that's what we said to each other. We said, we're going to do this because they can and they need us. We're going to do it too. Can you tell us about your work with children in Ukraine? Absolutely. So, you know, humanitarian aid is a broad spectrum of topics. It could be anything from repairing bombed vehicles so people can get back on the road to providing housing and everything in between. We were determined to do one thing well, and we had to pick out what was the one thing. Lots of people had project proposals for us, durable medical equipment, mini houses, all kinds of things. And we had to pick our lane. And what we decided to do was to focus on the children. It's just our personal experiences looking at the kids in the refugee centers in Poland and Ukraine and the safe houses. So the situation right now is that there are about 2.5 million children internally displaced in Ukraine. So that's 2.5 million kids who are not sleeping in their beds tonight. They're sleeping somewhere hiding. And we also know from well-funded studies that the Russians are kidnapping children in eastern Ukraine and taking them into Russia. And many families who are choosing to stay in eastern Ukraine are putting their kids on trains and sending them to western Ukraine. So this is something we've seen before in history, and it's just as tragic now. So kids are being sent every day on trains, alone, in groups, to western Ukraine in hopes that they'll find their way to a safe house. And that's where we come in. There are safe houses scattered across the landscape all over western Ukraine. They're not identified. Their addresses are military secrets. Kids come every day. The social services in Ukraine were robust before the war, and they had orphanages, just like we know them in the U.S., but the magnitude of the number of children overwhelmed their system. So in one area of the Carpathian Mountains, where we serve safe houses, they were set up to handle about 300 kids. Before the war, they're in excess of 3,000 kids now under the care of the system in Ukraine. They can't do it. There's not enough buildings. There's not enough beds. There's not enough silverware. There's not enough food. So our lane, the thing we decided to do was to provide food, warmth, and love to these children, the internally displaced kids and kids that have lost at least one parent. I'll talk about those two programs. First, we provide food. So far, we've provided 750, almost 800 tons of food. We buy it in the EU, put it in our warehouse in Poland, and then once a week, about 20,000 pounds goes in to Ukraine with volunteer truck drivers to the safe houses. And because we're kind of famous and respected by the military, We have the addresses and have access to the addresses of these safe houses. So we can go there. We're kept up to date on the census because it changes each day as kids come. And we bring food into these safe houses. As the war wore into winter, and now they needed 
sleeping bags. And so then we turn to the purchase and distribution of sleeping bags. We've delivered 10,000 sleeping bags into these safe houses. And then solar lanterns for kids. We felt it's important for kids to feel some sense of control over the darkness. We wanted each of them to have solar lanterns. And then generators, because as you know, Putin began bombing the infrastructure and these kids were in the dark. To visit a safe house of kids who've been on a train for three days from Kharkiv to Western Ukraine, and we arrive on a snowy night, and it's less than 40 degrees inside the safe house. Mm. There's no electricity. The only light you see is sort of the blue light of a cell phone flashlight. And kids are eating a cold potato, a half a piece of bread, and an apple. That's dinner. They're bundled up in their coats, and they welcome us with open arms. But those dark, repurposed, abandoned, this particular one I'm talking about was a Russian monastery, to see kids living there bravely while who knows what is happening at home. How's mom? How's dad? Is grandma okay? Do I still have a home? Is my community still there? Do I have a school to go back to? Those are the questions these kids have in their heads. And yet here they are to feed them and keep them warm. And when I say we also provide love, what I mean is we have two trauma counseling programs, a day program for refugee kids in Poland and a residential program for Ukrainian kids who've lost at least one parent. That's our three-pronged effort, food, warmth, generators, and love. listening to Ukraine 242. I am Anne Levine reporting from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Thank you for tuning in. Our guest, Susan Matheson, is one of four activists in Plymouth, New Hampshire, who founded and run the NGO Common Man for Ukraine. Above us only sky. Susan Matheson, can you tell us about children that touched you in a particular way? One evening, we met a 13-year-old girl. She had an electronic translating machine. We were delivering food and sleeping bags into her safe house, and she came running up and she said, I'm 13 years old. I'm Jewish. I want to learn Hebrew and I want to come visit the United States someday. And I had like my brain racing through all these thoughts. I'm a mom of two children. And I thought somewhere this girl's mother was filling the days before the war with taking her to dance lessons and to the synagogue and to school and checking her spelling words and arranging play dates and building in her wonderful dreams for her future. Wonderful dreams that we would want any of our children to have, have goals in life. And I was crushed by the fact that in this moment, I was bringing food into her safe house and a sleeping bag to keep her warm that night. And how Putin had stolen from her those dreams. For her to keep those dreams that she had before the war, to carry them through the life that probably she will face now in Ukraine, in her near future, 
her dreams will be very much different once the reality of what's happening in Ukraine and how it is ultimately resolved. But the fact that the foundational building blocks of her life from before the war to that moment had been so changed by someone she had no fault of her own. And here she is saying, I'm holding on to my dreams. I'm going to learn Hebrew and I want to come to the United States someday. It was it was a moving moment for me and crushing to think of the path that lay ahead for her. Had this girl lost both parents? I don't know the status of this particular girl's Mm -hmm. parents. I know she's in a safe house. Somebody put her there. Right. She's separated from her parents right now. Right. Who, Who knows what the status of her parents are? I hope her parents are fine. I hope her community is fine. I hope she can go back and live in the home that is still standing. Wow. In the meantime, we're bringing her food and sleeping bags and a solar lantern. And we're letting her know that Americans care about Ukrainians and they care about you right here in this moment. And that's what we told her. It must be an extraordinary thing for these kids to have Americans show up at a safe house. It just sounds like that would be bewildering. Our only experiences are positive with that. We, of course, are in correspondence with the safe houses. They know that we're coming because if they don't know we're coming, we're strangers arriving with big trucks. Not good. Right. So they know we're coming. Some safe houses are in desperate circumstances. Some have electricity. Some are in an area that hasn't been affected by the war yet. Hopefully never. And they will have rehearsed a beautiful dance recital for us and put the dance recital on and they'll put their music on and they'll sing the national anthem and make us handmade artwork to take home. And they're grateful and wonderful and gracious. I will say, even in the most desperate safe houses, we get greeted with warm hugs. It's nothing but positive. How many times have you been over? Five times. We're going to go three months in a row now, August, September, October. And we go for a number of reasons. One, we go to really cement and reinforce our relationships with our volunteers. We're depending on these truck drivers to leave their families and their homes, load up trucks, drive into a war zone and deliver food to kids they will never know. That's a big sacrifice, and we want to let them know how much we appreciate what they're doing. The other thing is we want to make sure that what we're funding is actually happening, that this warehouse is full of the same number of pallets as we think it is of food, that this bags of rope and cans of meat and boxes of fruit are getting delivered to these safe houses. We want to put our eyes on it and say there's no leakage, there's no under-the-table commerce going on with our donated food. And the last reason we go so often is we want to see these kids, we want to see what they need. Those needs change with the seasons, those change the duration of the war. And we want to make sure we're on top of it. We're anticipating what's next. What do they need? What other services can we provide? And that's kind of how we got into the trauma counseling end of things. After we said, okay, well, we've got enough food for these safe houses and their sleeping bags. We're doing the generator thing. But man, what are these kids facing? We started 
the trauma counseling program. So one, as I said, is outside of Warsaw, and it's for refugee kids in Poland. The other is a kind of a unique program. We identify 30 kids at a time inside Ukraine. We use our rotary contacts in Ukraine to find 30 children from throughout Ukraine. So kids who don't know each other that have each lost at least a parent, if not both parents or a parent and a brother, which is a common scenario. And we bring these kids from all over Ukraine. We put them in a bus and we take them to a resort area in Poland, a mountainous, beautiful uh, resort area. And for three weeks, these kids have all the food they can eat. They have trauma counseling every single day. They get art therapy. They get sports therapy. They go hiking. They're out in the fresh air. They go swimming. They go tour Krakow, just like regular tourists. And for three weeks, they don't hear a single bomb or a single air raid siren. They make friends with other kids that are suffering the same path that they are, that they have not known before. And we hope we give them some very rudimentary tools to face the rocky road ahead. We want them to know that we recognize the tragedy that you're facing and we want to give you the tools to look forward. These are the kids that are going to grow up and rebuild Ukraine as a strong democracy. We can give them some tools. We can give them some love. We can give them a break from what they're living through. We can give them a network of other children in the same situations We can give them some friends and send them on their way. So we do that three weeks of kids, and then a week our staff gets off. Another three weeks, we bring the next 30 kids in, and we do this every single month. What's the age range of the children that you're helping? Infant to 17. We're taking those kids from every oblast in Ukraine from Kharkiv, from Zaporozhye, every region of Ukraine. And these are kids that have lost their parents. They live in Ukraine. They're coming to Poland for these three weeks. And then we return them to their guardians, whoever that be, a safe house, a parent, relative. So just think of the paperwork involved, like getting these kids across the border, getting them back, gaining trust with their guardians that we are not kidnapping. And that's where the Rotary Connection really helped. This is all done under their umbrella so that they can have trust that these kids are safe and well cared for. On staff, we have three certified teachers, a certified medical doctor, all Ukrainian, and then a licensed psychologist, also Ukrainian. In about 15 months, you've gone from being four good friends in a coffee shop in New Hampshire to warehouses, trucks, pallets, thousands of sleeping bags, a resort in Poland, and counseling. How on earth did you do that in such a short period of time? I'm a single mom, a widow. I raised two children. And when I die, I will think I did two really important things in my life. One was raise my kids, and one was to do this work. It is the best of humanity. We've had people donate everything from three $5 bills in an envelope from a convent in New Hampshire 
to an anonymous donation of $250,000. We have a fifth grader named Robbie who kind of went viral in the Boston area because he made construction paper Ukrainian flags and sold them around his neighborhood and sent us $48. And when that news story hit Boston, people donated because of Robbie. I have story after story, a, a box of handmade uh, crocheted animals, magnificent crocheted animals, and a note written in the handwriting that we would associate with a very elderly person. And the note said, my heart hurts for the kids in Ukraine. I cannot afford to make a donation, but I have yarn and I know how to crochet. Will you please make sure these stuffed animals, hugs, get to the kids in Ukraine? My goodness. <laughs> it's the first thing I packed for the next trip. Those stuffed animals are in a safe house, in the kids' arms. I know because I put them there. Oh, it's the best of humanity. People are so generous and kind. People who are interested in our story and our work, you can go to our website at commonmanforukraine.org. If you just want to learn more about it and learn about various fundraisers as they come up, have a great visual presentation with videos inside the safe houses and movies of our convoy being escorted through Lviv, go to our website, commonmanforukraine.org. And get on our mailing list, and we'll keep you informed of what we're doing. Well, you certainly are incredibly impressive, the four of you. It's really feeling that we represent thousands of donors who want to do good. And we happen to have figured out how. And so we feel like a huge responsibility. They've entrusted us to deliver for these kids, and we're going to do it. Well, I want to mention the op-ed you did in the Hartford Current. Would you describe that for us? Sure. I am a very typical American. I keep track of politics and social issues and identify people. What lawn signs they have, what bumper stickers they have, uh, what radio stations they listen to, what TV stations they watch. And I find myself making assumptions about a person. And I got involved with Common Man for Ukraine, and I am in trucks with volunteers from Poland and Ukraine, and we are living together. And never once have I learned what bumper sticker he or she might have on their car. All I've learned is that they're there to help another human being. There's just this one thing that we're doing together. And it's a lesson for me, and I need to do the extra effort of saying, where's our commonality? And in this situation, the commonality is caring for other humans who we don't know, and we're going to do it together. The only thing stronger than fear is love. I urge people to read Susan Matheson's op-ed from the Hartford Current. Thank you. When we end this interview, we play a song. I like to ask my guests which song they would like us to play. Hmm. How about Imagine by John Lennon? So thank you. Safe travels and journey. Thank you. Thank you. 
Imagine by John Lennon. Thank you to our guest, Susan Matheson. To learn more, go to commonmanforukraine.org. I am the host and producer, Anne Levine, from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Editing, Ursula Rudenberg. Recording, Michael Levine. To see pictures of our guests and to access our library of our previous shows, go to ukraine242.com. Thank you for joining us.